0: Well, I now know that John Piper wasn't one of the 37 other speakers that Roger tried to get before he phoned me. Uh, It looks like Carson has also slipped from grace. (laughs) But it's uh, it's just lovely to be here, and I so enjoyed the remainder of yesterday. Um, It was was a wonderful day, and we've got so much to look forward to uh, this morning. We're going to turn to... Uh, 1 Timothy 4 it's lovely to have Roger and Rosemary with us and I've asked Rosemary if she'll come and read 1 Timothy chapter 4 the first 16 verses so thank you we're going to hear it in a lovely Northern Irish accent as we listen to the word of God this morning, thank you
1: I need to put my glasses on to see it <laughs> right, 1 Timothy chapter 4 now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly That in the last times, some will turn away from what we believe. They will follow lying spirits and teaching that come from demons. These teachers are hypocrites and liars. They pretend to be righteous, but their consciences are dead. They will say it is wrong to be married and wrong to eat certain foods. But God created those foods to be eaten with thanksgiving by people who know and believe the truth. Since everything God created is good... We should not reject any of it. We may receive it gladly with thankful hearts, for we know it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you explain this to the brothers and sisters, you will be doing your duty as a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is fed by the message of faith and the true teaching you have followed. Do not waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Spend your time and energy in training yourself for spiritual fitness. Physical exercise and some value, but spiritual exercise is much more important, for it promises a reward in both this life and the next. This is true, and everyone should accept it. We work hard and suffer much in order that people will believe the truth, for our hope is in the living God, who is the Saviour of all people and particularly of those who believe. Teach these things and insist that everyone learn them. Don't let anyone think less of you because you are young. Be an example of all believers in what you teach, in the way you live, in your love and faith and your purity. Until I get there, focus on reading the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. Do not neglect the spiritual gift you received through the prophecy spoken to you when the elders of the church laid their hands on you. Give your complete attention to these matters. Throw yourself into the task so that everyone will see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Stay true to what is right and God will save you and those who hear you. This is the word of God.
0: Amen. Amen. And we thank the Lord for his precious word. Would you stand with me as we pray just for a moment? Good to change our position a little bit before we sit to hear the word of God. And uh, let's just pray together in the words of Paul in Ephesians 1. And Father, we could say this morning before you that we do not cease to give thanks for these brothers and sisters. And we remember one another in our prayers And now particularly as we come to your word in this session We're asking you That that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ The Father of glory May give to us here uh, In this conference centre this morning A spirit of wisdom and revelation And the knowledge of him Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened That we may know what is the hope to which you have called us. And what are the riches of our glorious inheritance. In the saints. In Jesus name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Well as we settle into session two this morning. It's take my lifestyle. And let it be. And uh, there was. uh very recently erected in Glasgow Central Station, just in the week or two weeks prior to COP26 beginning, a huge wooden human uh, as a kind of statue. And on the plinth, there was a poem by the poet laureate Jackie Kay. You probably can't read it from there, but let me read it to you. So Jackie Kay is our uh, apparently she's a poet and you wouldn't necessarily know it from this but here's here's po- <laughs> yeah it may not quite meet the trades description act in terms of poetry but here is what it said hope is black lives matter hope is me too hope is my son and my daughter hope is a girl called greta hope is the color of the future Now, it, it, would be, it would be easy to, to mock that wee verse, but actually, I, I find it heartbreaking to listen to that and to see that. Uh, to, to see that, of course, of course, the, the line that Black Lives Matter—nobody in the right mind would deny that. Of course, there is truth in, in so much of what she says. It, it, there are elements of truth in that, but it points us to the fact that there is a long for. A longed for hope and hope is such uh, in such short supply in our community. It's been fascinating to me to see the rainbow make a reappearance during COVID as a symbol of hope and the longing for hope again. Very interesting to see that kind of symbolism in the general culture. I don't know whether um, Martin will say more about that in the next session. Probably not, but it's just a small thing. Uh, But but of interest, just as you see these cultural trends and see people responding in different ways, desperate for some kind of hope. At Christianity Explored Ministries, we have just launched a very short three-session series called Hope Explored, where we look at the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus in three sessions from Luke's Gospel, and alongside these, we're looking at the pursuit of hope and peace and purpose that people have. These are the felt needs, and we're looking at the facts and uniting the facts of the gospel with the, with the felt needs that people have in, in their lives. And the way we're defining hope on that series is this. It's a joyful expectation for the future based on historic realities in the past that changes Everything about the present. A joyful expectation for the future based on solid historic realities in the past that changes everything about the present. And as we begin to think as a team about the the development of this and uh, the launch of it, I just had a desire in my own heart to think a little bit more about what the New Testament says about the Christian hope. I'd often probably touched on it in the way preaching through Bible books and seen the relevance of it in verses like I just quoted there from Ephesians 1, verse 18, that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see the hope that we have, etc., etc. But I wanted to try to understand what the New Testament says about the Christian hope. And I discovered afresh not only how glorious is the Christian hope, but how stunningly down to earth is the Christian hope. It is not pie in the sky when you die. It is absolute core life-changing reality for the moment in which we live and affects almost every aspect of life. So because of that this morning, we're going to turn back to 1 Timothy and to that passage that Rosemary read so beautifully for us. And what I want to do is touch base with you on every reference to hope that Paul makes in this one book, in 1 Timothy. I want to do that because even as Christian believers, even as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the, the great danger is that we sometimes shorten our own field of vision. It's a huge temptation for us to do so and to begin to have uh, hopes that are only for this world or hopes that are only immediately invested in what's going to happen in this phase of life or in this phase of ministry and so on. And that's good and that's important, but we need to have the longest range of hope to keep us going. We need to understand Christian hope and we need to set our hearts joyfully upon it. Uh, obviously, before sharing the hope of the gospel with others, we need to be personally thrilled by it, continually. Thrilled by it ourselves. So my plan is to hopefully, <laughs> there's the word, encourage you as we uh, have a look at this this morning uh, to build our lives on this glorious truth. So two things essentially I want us to look at. Number one, uh, the, the essence of our hope. The essence of our hope. And that takes us to the very first verse of 1 Timothy. We didn't read it already, but let's have a look at it now. Chapter 1, verse 1. Just as a little introduction today, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. It's always fascinating to be to see how interchangeable the role of God the Father and God the Son are in terms of Saviour. We would normally speak of Jesus as the Saviour. And God the Father is our hope. But here God the Father is of our Savior. He's the author of our salvation in the sending of his Son. And Christ Jesus is our hope. And as soon as we read that final line of the first verse of this letter from Paul to Timothy, if we know anything true about the Lord Jesus, which of course we do, then we're also now in an instant able to deduce that the kind of hope That Paul is speaking about here, when he speaks of Christ, Jesus, our hope, isn't the same as the hope, the word that people use day in and day out. I hope it won't rain when I'm walking the dog. Well, it may be a fervent hope, but it has zero impact on the weather, as I demonstrate most times that I'm out with the dog. And when someone says to you... um, Well, I hope you know what you're doing. Don't you know that the last thing they hope is that you know what you're doing? When someone says that, what they really hope is that your incompetence is going to be unveiled and they will be demonstrated to have been right to have raised questions about your sanity when they say, I hope you know what you're doing. Or if you ever worked a job where the boss says, "Now, I hope you don't mind, but I've changed your days off on the roster for next week you're not off next weekend hope you don't mind or here's hoping or fingers crossed it's all utterly meaningless and i just mentioned these few common usage of the word hope to show that when christ jesus is our hope we're using the same word of course But we are using it in a radically different sense, with a radically different meaning. Because he does not mean the opposite of what he says. He does not tie us up in riddles. He does not speak meaningless platitudes. And so there is a sense in which, brothers and sisters, when we're talking about the Christian hope, we have to evangelistically uncouple hope from any of the uncertain ways in which it's used. In our day to day lives and attach it to the rock solid certainty that is to be found only in the Lord Jesus. That's why, for example, uh, as a cross reference, Hebrews 6 speaks, doesn't it, of us as those who have fled for refuge, that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast Anchor of the soul. That's what we need, isn't it? That's what I need. A hope that is entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And I just think there is no other context in this world in which the word hope can be a sure and steadfast anchorage. Only is that possible when Christ Jesus is our hope. So our hope is a person. And he lives, having died for our sin. And now he's exalted to the right hand of his Father. And now this morning, in all the complexities of our life, he works out everything according to the counsel of his will. And he will return in power and glory. And he will gather his people. Millions of people redeemed by that one life. That bloodshed on the cross and will be with him forever. So at its very essence the Christian hope is in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it it kind of slightly reflects on what we were saying yesterday, what I was trying to communicate yesterday a little bit, that our hope is built not on what we have done for Him, but always in what He has done for us. It's built entirely on the initiative that he took and what he's done to save us. And it's worth stressing that again because I find that Christians lose their hope and lose their joy when they lose sight of that hope in what he has done for us. And they begin to feel hopeless about their own performance. They they look at their lives. And that happens, doesn't it, as we grow in grace, we become more aware of our sinfulness. But if we become too introspective and are always looking at our own failures, the enemy can use that to make us full of despair and to feel hopeless. But actually our hope is not in ourselves. So I look at myself and I see that I am hopeless. But that's, it's not okay. It took Jesus' blood to free me from that. But it is okay in the sense that he is my hope. And that's what McShane did, didn't it? You you read McShane, he's terrifically, sometimes amazingly introspective. He's always thinking about his own, the process of thinking, his life, his thoughts, his attitudes, and so on. And yet he says, take ten looks to Christ, for every one at yourself, because our hope is built on him. So let me encourage you, if you need to, to recalibrate your hope today, and set it on what the Lord has done for us, never on what we have done for him, good or bad. Our hope is not inert, it's not vague. He is living and active and he's done things for us that we could never have done for ourselves. So the Lord Jesus and what he's done and those he has called to his salvation, is the that is the essence of our glorious hope and we rejoice in that. Now, that was just by way of introduction. I really want us to get to what I would call the effect of our hope. The effect of our hope. So what does having Christ Jesus as a sure and steadfast hope? What does that do to our day-to-day lives? What impact does that have on the Christian community? And as you think about your local church fellowship, what impact ought this to have? What does this hope look like to the people who live next door, to the people who work alongside our Christian friends? Who might see in us something distinctive that's not us. They might see in the believer something that is humanly inexplicable. And they might, according to 1 Peter 3.15, be prompted at the water cooler or at lunch some day or over the garden fence to ask us, can you explain the hope that you have? Because I see there's something in your life. Now, what is the kind of life that draws that question? I've often wanted to ask a group of Christians, has anybody ever been asked the 1 Peter 3.15 question? Has anybody ever bowled up to you and said, listen, can I just ask you about the hope that you have? I've I've never been asked that question. But I want to notice with you this morning, three lifestyles in 1 Timothy, mentioned by Paul in this letter. And we're going to see the effect of having Christ Jesus as our hope in each of them. So this is, I hope, going to be very practical and very encouraging to you. In a moment, we're going to see those we find living in luxury. And we're going to find those who are living in loneliness. Never let it be said that I'm a slave to alliteration. But first of all, those we find living in Lycra now don't turn, to the, don't turn to the atlas in your Bible Lycra is not an ancient city I'm, I'm talking now about gym gear turn to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy where Paul has a word of encouragement to those who have renewed their gym membership at the start of 2022 uh, because I'm a miserable Scotsman I decided that the only way I was going to commit was to pay in advance for a six-month swim ticket. And when I did this, I I think I did it for three, six months in a row or something like that. Fifty pounds in advance. If you get 50 quid out of me, I will be there every morning. And I used to go across. uh, Roger stayed with us in the house in in Glasgow, in uh, Torridon Avenue, in in, in Paul Shields. And just across in Bellahouson Park, there was a a swimming pool as part of the, the gym. And I was there every morning, five mornings a week, 6.30, waiting in the place opening, getting my 50 quid's worth. And at the end of the, I think I bought three in a row, and at the end of it, I hated it as much as I did at the start. But I was always there. And there was, it was so interesting last night, listening to Carol, that fabulous presentation about reaching out with love to the older people. There was, a, there was two older ladies who swam every morning at the same time as me. I used to go thinking the pool would be quiet. And it was, there was only three or four of us at that time. And one of them, I called her the Waverly because it was like swimming with a paddle steamer. She was she was an unbelievable. I think she must have been in her late 70s or early 80s. But she just was like a machine going up and down. But it was the noise. It was the boosh, boosh, boosh. It was like the paddle steamer effect. And the girls used to say when I went back for breakfast, was the paddle steamer in this morning, Dad? Yep, 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 she was there. And every year, about the end of January, this gym would put up a, 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 a huge hoarding banner that said, For those of you who joined and are ready to quit already, see you next year. <laughs> and I thought that was clever psychology. Because everybody thought, yeah, they have going to do it this year. And you sign up in January, and by, by this point you're going, oh, for goodness sake, another hour in bed would be much better for me than having to go around the gym. Well, here's a word of encouragement. Verse 8 of chapter 4. Bodily training is of some value. Bodily training is of some value. Thank you for that, Paul. But it's not our ultimate hope. So I'm dead serious about this this morning. It's not our ultimate hope for those who live in Lycra. Just over the back from our home now where we live in Renfrew, close to Glasgow Airport, is one of these David Lloyd gyms. And that's my gym. When I say it's my gym, I've been in there. Uh, and when I say I've been in there, it was a funeral tea in the restaurant. <laughs> but, 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 but I can, when I'm walking the dog, I can look over the fence. And because it's the, we call it the Lloydy, because it's the Lloydy, it's not young people who go there. Most young people couldn't afford the fees. You, you've probably got to be in midlife, uh, to, to go to the Lloydy. And I see these pink-faced people, looking at themselves in the long mirrors, and I know when I look at them coming in and coming out so regularly that the gym is actually a hope factory. That's really what's going on there. It's a hope factory. They're selling hope. And people are there buying hope at the gym. The faces that I see are faces of people who are building their hope on having the body of a 20-year-old when they're in their 50s. Now, when I was a little boy, my granny used to say to me, my granny used to say, oh, show me your muscles. And we boys used to do that and show their muscles. And now there's 55-year-old guys doing that and showing their muscles. Very extraordinary. Now, Paul says it is good to look after our bodies. There is value in this. And it is good to do all that we can to, to take care of our health. And it's a very precious thing and do what we can if we have a measure of fitness to stay fit yeah we definitely should do that but as christian believers for those who live in lycra which is huge chunks of the population nowadays that's not where our hope is and even if we have a natural interest in fitness and thank goodness some of us do that there might be some evangelists still in 20 years time Thank goodness some of us are great at sport and are great at the gym, are engaging people there. I wouldn't mock that for a moment. I think it's marvellous. But that's not where our hope is. As Christian believers, we know that we came from the dust and we know that we're returning to the dust until we're given resurrection bodies. But that means that there is no permanent hope in our physical well-being. No permanent hope. Is in our spiritual well-being. It's in our relationship with God. It's in our increasing likeness to his son, the Lord Jesus. And Paul says that this spiritual reality is where believers do most of their working out. It's where we do most of the heavy lifting lifting. It's the arena where we sweat it out and put the effort and the energy in. Look at the words of verse 10 there in chapter 4. For to this end we toil and strive, sometimes struggle and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially of those who believe. I think this is very practical. The sign that we have our hope set on the living God is that Most of the strength that the most strenuous work in our lives is spiritual. It's very challenging, isn't it? Very practical. We toil and we strive. We go into training. Have a look at verse seven. There's the language. Train yourselves for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value In every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So there is significant mental and physical benefit in bodily training. In going for a walk. In getting some fresh air. In having a swim. In having a jog. There's definite blessing and and benefit in that. God has made us as whole people. Given us the gift of amazing bodies. But all of that holds absolutely zero promise for the life to come. And if we don't see the reality to which Paul points here, physical training can cause us to live only for this life. And I think there's a generation of believers who are heading in that direction in their thinking. You'll have noticed that physical fitness is often linked to attractive appearance. That's why you've got the loonies in the lycra at the gym doing all this stuff to see how they look. They're not there just to be fit, which is commendable. They're there for an appearance. And from an alarmingly early age, we begin to notice, don't we, that changes come. Age brings changes to our faces and our bodies for ages i was using these little blue masks during covid and then my wife got me a box of black ones and someone said to me they much prefer me with the black one the black mask on to the to the other mask because it seems to cover a bit more of my face which was hugely encouraging to hear from them the other day but we do notice changes don't we the jowls begin to appear and i'm not going to tell the detail you can see it for yourself but it's, it's, it, it can be alarming. It can, and, and some people are really destabilized by this. But listen, when we have our hope set on the living God, our levels of fitness, and some of us have great levels of fitness. I think of these Sazra guys who are here, uh, and they've probably been up the climbing wall already this morning 15 times. Probably, <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> probably haven't, but they could do if they had to. And many of you could. But some of us are battling with physical health. Some of us have got serious question marks over our physical health. And it's so important to know, isn't it, that physical fitness and physical appearance does not have the power to define the people of God. When I say define, what I mean is it neither has the power to make us feel great when we look in the mirror or to feel grim when we look in the mirror and we live in a world where people either feel great or grim and they're defined by their physical appearance and the whole social media thing and the whole issue of how you look especially among the younger people is is crippling a generation and we've got a gospel that says you're not defined by your physical reality Physical fitness is a blessing to be treasured as best we can. It is of some value, but the real treasure is what God has done for us in Christ. And our toiling and our striving that Paul speaks of here as we touched on yesterday is not toiling and striving and training to make ourselves worthy of what the Lord has done for us, but it is to train ourselves up to make sure that our hope is fully and completely and exclusively in what Christ has done for us. Now that means that when I see brothers and sisters who at least don't seem to be throwing energy and effort and enthusiasm into the Christian life, when I see that they don't seem to be throwing a lot of energy into the work of the church family, they don't seem to be involved in things, they don't seem to be involved in the evangelism and not bringing friends and not at the prayer events and and not really wholeheartedly with us when I see that I I was never able I was never sure how to handle that in the past but now I've begun to wonder it's not just perhaps laziness it may be that they have disengaged because their hope has dwindled They're, they're no longer hoping fully in the living God and I say that because of that important joining word in verse 10 for to this end we toil and strive because we've set our hope on the living God. The toiling and the striving to stay rooted in Christ. The toiling and the striving mentally not to put our hope in anything else that presents itself as a as a pseudo hope of, of uh, pseudo presentation of hope. The toiling and the striving and the training for godliness in in in, in thought and and action and and orientation of my life and and, and what I'm going to throw my energy at the training and the striving and the toiling that's required is because we have our hope set on the living God and therefore if our hope is elsewhere there's no toil and there's no striving and there's no training and there's no service and there's no joy in the Lord just a feeling of being utterly bemused and out of place among believers others of whom seem to be so excited about what the Lord is doing in them and through them when I just want to go and watch box sets or go to the gym now when, when we encounter that in the local church it can be so discouraging but let me encourage you the next time you see that kind of thing that someone's greatest joy is another box set and you know that they name the name of Christ and you know that they, they, they used to be on fire Maybe it's a hope deficit. And maybe to draw alongside and have a talk to them and and share with them from this passage and say to them, come on, brother, come on, sister, our hope is not in these things. Our hope is in the living God. A word for those we find living in Lycra. Right, it'll be a great relief to get that image out of our minds as we move secondly to those we find living in loneliness. Oh dear. Did I? Go back. There we go. Yeah, there we go. I'll just put them all up now. Those we find living in loneliness. So the next type of person Paul writes to Timothy about is an older lady in the church family. Very pertinent after Carl's presentation last night. I've got Betty in my mind this morning and we find betty here in ephesus paul has begun to focus on this older group very interesting in chapter 5 verse 2 well chapter 5 verse 1 he says do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father younger men as brothers older women as mothers younger women as sisters in all purity But there's an older sister here who's lost her husband. She's a widow in the church in Ephesus. She's not the only widow in the fellowship. But the other sisters in Christ who've lost their husbands maybe have children and grandchildren to look after them in verses 3 and 4. But the lady that Paul focuses on in verse 5 of chapter 5 doesn't have any family to take care of her. So he says, and here's another mention of the word hope, Chapter 5, verse 5. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, that's where I get the living and loneliness thing, has set all her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, obviously, at this day and age, when Paul is writing to Timothy, this sister would have had no income. She would have had no pension, no government provision at the time. But she did, interestingly, from David's talk on Christmas Evans last night, she did have the equivalent of a C.H. Spurgeon pleading for her to have some kind of care issued to her. And Paul goes on to show how the church is to care for her and those like her. That's part of the pastoral implication of what he says. But it's wonderful how, as he writes about her, he says to Timothy, you know, she has set her hope On God, And the reality of that is that she has a very lively prayer life. A beautiful thing. She continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, having introduced you to this lady who's living in loneliness, familiarly speaking, I'm going to let her have a seat because she's older. And we'll come back to her in just a moment. We're going to catch up with her, with Betty in Ephesus in just a moment. But I now want to go to that last group that you see on the screen. We've seen those who are living in Lycra, who are at the gyms of some value. Those living in loneliness, Betty and her friends. Now those who live in luxury. The other person, the final person we're going to meet this morning, is is part of a group as well. And they're spoken of in the plural in chapter 6, verse 17. Have a glance over to chapter 6, verse 17. They're not like the widow, at least in the sense that they are very wealthy. Now, if you and I were visiting Ephesus in the day when Timothy was there and Paul was writing to him, and we were being shown around and meeting these different people, there was the, the group maybe, I don't know that they all sat together, probably didn't, but there were widows and there were wealthy. Which group would you be wanting to have lunch with afterwards? Where would you naturally hope the invitation to go for a bite of lunch would come from if you were preaching In that church in Ephesus. I guess like me you'd much rather. If you were honest. Be in the group of the wealthy people. But what is very striking is that nothing is said about the prayer life of the wealthy. What is very striking is that there's a bit of a question mark over their hope in verse 17 of chapter 6. Do you see it? As for the rich in this present age. Oh do you hear the alarm bells ringing with that word? We've set our hope in the living God. But those who are rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Unless the miracle of Ephesians 1.18 happens and the eyes of our hearts are miraculously enlightened and open to see the reality of life, we will only pity the widow and envy the wealthy. That's the bog-standard response of my heart. Unless its eyes are open to see things as they actually are. We may at a stretch agree that there's more to life than money, but we won't see the reality of the situation as Paul described it. Our lives won't be changed by the hope that is set in the Lord Jesus unless he opens the eyes of our heart to see this reality. Because... As our heart eyes begin to see reality, we're amazed to discover that those with comparative financial security in Ephesus are potentially, can you believe it, sisters and brothers, this morning? They're potentially in a more vulnerable position than the widow who has no financial security at all. Paul says that she has set her hope on God and she continues in supplications and prayers night and day. And the implication is that the materially wealthy, about whom he speaks in 617, don't think they need God to set their hope on. And they don't continue in supplications and prayers night and day because they have to be reminded not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God. In fact, they're in danger of setting their hope on their wealth. And I find it absolutely fascinating that they're the ones whose future would be uncertain, not the widow who doesn't actually know where her next meal is coming from. It's not godly widows whose hope is set on the Lord who are vulnerable to life's uncertainties. It's the wealthy says Paul. Look look, look at that phrase in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. They've set their hopes on something that's uncertain. Whereas the widow, she has set her hope on the living God. If you'd seen the widow and the wealthy walking into the meeting on Sunday morning, would you rather be Who would you rather be, spiritually speaking? Of course we'd rather be wealthy. And there is no particular blessing in poverty. But who would you rather be spiritually? Amazing here to see that the wealthy are prone to all the uncertainties of temporary material wealth. That's why whenever there is an economic decline and and, and a Black Friday, there are suicides. Because when your whole life is constructed on that, and then the trap door opens, there's nothing left to live for. So the wealthy, says Paul, are prone to the terrible uncertainties of temporary material wealth. But the widow whose hope is in God, she's bomb-proof. Betty is (laughs) bomb-proof. Isn't it glorious? Now, that's not the way I think. That's not the way I see the church family when I think about those who are vulnerable. But Paul's writing to Timothy here, a young elder pastor in Ephesus, and, he, and he's not saying, no, look, make sure you get around to Betty. She's in a terrible state. And she's got no money coming in. She's saying, no, no. He's saying, no, her hope is in the living God. Listen, get the church family to get around her. And incidentally, there's a just as, as as our brother Carl was speaking last night, there is a massive evangelistic impact as we care for the elderly within our church family. Close to where we live is Linwood Gospel Hall. And we have a friend whose neighbor is not a Christian, but who knows an elderly lady who's in the assembly in Linwood Gospel Hall. And this non-Christian neighbor said to our Christian friends, and now I don't go to the meetings at Linwood Gospel Hall, but I'll tell you this, they look after each other. They look after, and they mentioned the name of the person who was known to them in our 80s, who gets picked up and taken to the meeting, who's out every weekend for her lunch, who has people popping in with messages and having a happy time with her. Now that that person's not hearing the gospel, but that person is seeing the gospel through that witness. That totally raises the plausibility of the gospel. That's a great thing that we heard last night from Carl. Just to encourage you on that. But Betty's bomb-proof in Ephesus. And that's what the Christian hope does. That's how practical it is to have your hope set on the living God. And you don't have to be a widow to have financial insecurity, do you? If you're in Christian work, the chances are. Many a time, you have to scratch your head and wonder how you're going to manage to get the car through its MOT. Or how you're, are you going to manage a holiday this year? Or, or what are you going to do to help the family who need this? One of the kids growing up has hit a bit of a bump in the road. and What, what can you do? Brothers and sisters, there is a type of financial insecurity, but there is a type of security that is infinitely more precious when our hope is set on the living God. And I think, still more fascinating, it's not the widow who is going to be cared for by the church, but she's not going to be a drain on the church, but the wealthy with that haughty attitude that Paul warns about there in 6.17, with that deadly smugness, That comes from a deep sense of self-sufficiency. And even, even a sense of arrogant superiority. That's what's going to be a drain on the church family. That's what's going to make the advance of the gospel hard in that community. When you've got that attitude prevailing. And that's why they have to be commanded. Pack it in. Fix your hope in God. I think it's so surprising. And yet it makes perfect sense that Paul, as he writes to Timothy, is not fretting for the widow whose hope is in the Lord, but he is fretting for the wealthy whose hope is in their looker. And he tells Timothy, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And what does God do? Here's the other side of this message we've got to get crystal clear in our heads. Is God fizzing angry at the wealthy because they've got money? Is he jealous of them? Of course not. He's the one who, end of the verse, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Do you see that far from being envious of the materially wealthy, Paul wants the wealthy in Ephesus to be truly wealthy, eternally enriched. The God on whom they are to set their hopes, owns the universe. He's loaded and he's generous. How have we managed to give the impression that God is stingy? How have we managed to give the impression to the world that God goes around scowling when he sees people being happy and enjoying life? He's the opposite of that. He richly provides us. He doesn't scarcely provide us. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's not against people enjoying life. He's a generous God. He doesn't just give us our essentials. He gives for our enjoyment. And when our hope is in him, we enjoy him. And so, verse 18 of chapter 6, here's what they are to do. They are to do good and they are to be rich. Oh, the irony of that is incredible. Command the wealthy that they are to be rich. In what way? They're to be rich in good works. They're to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's what Paul's worried about. He's worried for them that they're taking hold of that which is not truly life. And there's the essence and the effect of the Christian hope. When our hope is fully set on the living God, we cut our ties with the addictive false hopes like wealth and appearance. And we hold on to that which is truly life. And the the alternative is holding on to that which is truly death. Flick back for a moment to chapter 5, verse 6, where we see that the opposite of the prayerful widow, interestingly, is she who is self-indulgent... And is dead even while she lives. Very striking. That the opposite of those who hold that which is truly life. Is that they're holding that which is truly death. Here is someone who's self-indulgent. And you can picture that life. I'm trying to give you eyes and your ears. This morning. But you can picture the person self-indulgent. Immaculately presented. The latest clothes. All the fancy magic that they work, the makeup and all the rest of it, and the hair immaculate just out of the salon and the sports car, and they they arrive at the the ladies' Bible study, and they smell great, and they look great, and they shouldn't, because they're a man, they shouldn't even be there. No, I'm talking about a woman. (laughs) talking about a woman now. and And in she comes, and she's always talking about herself. And when somebody's trying to tell her what's going on in their life. She just cuts across with another anecdote about herself and what she's doing this weekend, how the boat's going back in the water and the, they're going to their villa in Monte and they're going to maybe sell the estate in her galshire because it's not big enough and on and on and on and on and on. And Paul says, she's dead while she lives. Hmm. Brothers and sisters, we have to have the eyes of our hearts open to see these realities, which are the opposite of what we instinctively think and believe. Think of the wealthy, think of the widow. Who is better off? Who is better off? Nancy Wogemoth, our sister from the States, says, Anything that makes me need God is a blessing. So Betty in Ephesus, she's lost her husband. They never had any kids. No family, no siblings. She's on her own, apart from the church family. They're looking after her well, but she, she hangs on to the Lord day and night. And as she prays for her own needs, she prays for the church. She prays for the advance of the gospel. And when people are kind to her, she's kind to others. Betty in Ephesus would get Nancy Wilgamoth. Betty would say, Yeah, anything that makes me need God is a blessing. Betty would say, Yeah, it's uh, seven years now since my husband died. I thought I could never live without him. I'm looking forward to being with him in heaven someday. I'll see him again when I see my Saviour. But actually, what I've discovered is these last seven years I've got closer to the Lord. And anything that makes me need God is a blessing. Whereas the wealthy person is thinking, anything that makes me not need God is a blessing. Anything that makes me not have to feel insecure. Anything that I don't have to feel I've lost control over. Oh, I much prefer that. I don't have to pray. I don't have to depend on him like that. Oh, what poverty. Now, brothers and sisters, to this end we toil and strive. This is what the training is. It's hard graft to train our minds to think this way. It's the opposite of what we have drunk in. It's the opposite of the air we breathe. But that's what Paul means. We toil and we strive to stop ourselves setting our hope on the temporary uncertain hopes as they present ourselves looking great, having loads. And we keep our hope set on Christ Jesus, our hope. But when we taste it, we'll get it. And we'll keep our hope set on the living God. Our gracious Father, As we close off this session now this morning, we pray that in your mercy and your kindness to us, you might help us to have these eyes of our hearts enlightened and open. Because speaking for myself, Lord, and you know my heart, I need constant re-education as to what is actual reality. And thank you for the way that your word so critiques and unpacks that reality for for us. We pray this morning that you would help us in our engagement with the gym and the beauty culture. And the pursuit of youth as a culture. And help us with those who have significant material wealth thank you for many who pour themselves out for the work of the gospel because their hope is set in the living god but for those who whose character is being mangled by the temporary and uncertainty of wealth we cry to you for them and thank you for the bettys in our church families in our lives who continue in prayer and supplication night and day. And they're bomb-proof in Christ. Make us like that, we pray. And help us to see how this glorious gospel, this hope in God, has a massive practical impact that in our lives and in our communities people may say to us, can you explain the hope you have for the glory of
1: our Savior, we pray. Amen.